You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. Today I wanted to talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, There is a lot of talk going on about does this have anything to do with Bible prophecy or not. There is a general view, as far as I can tell, that it does, that we are witnessing the the events in the Bible or prophecies are coming true. These are the kinds of things that I'm hearing people say. Um, And I would just want to go through today and check our facts about that, because there is a tendency, I believe for people to um, shoot from the hip when it comes to this issue. Because there is a desire in this generation, as there has been in every generation of the church, to make our geopolitical events fit with Bible prophecy. There's almost like a snare or something that, that Christians have never been able to break free of, that whatever's happening, whether it's Nero or the fall of Rome or Attila the Hun or Genghis Khan or the Catholic Church or uh, Islam, or whatever, we will make anything fit the book of Revelation, and we don't mind how much we have to twist to get there, as long as we can fulfill our primary goal of making whatever it is that's happening fit with the end times. And so, because that, we, we should recognize that as a historical fact, that that is a thing that Christians do, and so therefore we need to be more guarded than our predecessors. How do we be more guarded We need to have good arguments for whether or not certain prophecies in the Bible are in fact being fulfilled with this Israeli-Palestinian conflict or anything else. And it will help us to be good watchmen because then we will know what to watch for. And so I wanted to go through some premises today. Well, first I wanted to talk about what possible biblical reasons someone could have genuinely have for saying, look, I'm not being fast and loose with the text. I genuinely think that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict today has something to do with Bible prophecy. We'll go through their potential arguments there. We'll talk about whether or not they're valid or not, and maybe look at some different perspectives. And so um, let's just jump right in. I would say the most valid reason for somebody saying that this conflict could be related to Bible prophecy would be if that person held to a very um, Hal Lindsey version of events, which, to be fair, most of evangelical Christianity or premillennial Christianity holds to some version of Hal Lindsey. Even those of us in the pre-wrath or uh, uh, camp or, or kind of have a lot of Hal Lindsey hangover uh, paradigm stuff that we are still holding on to, some of which we'll talk about here. And in that scenario, especially in the pre-trib world, where they believe that the rapture is the next event on the prophetic timeline. In fact, they're very serious about that. They call it the eminence doctrine and say that there can be no prophetic events that occur before the rapture, that it must happen next. It is imminent. And of course, we pre-rathers and post-tribbers and mid-tribbers have long argued that there are exactly in the Bible multiple precursors in the film Seven Pre-Trib Problems in the Pre-Rath Rapture. The whole first section is called the Precursor Problem, where we show the various things like Joel 2.31. 
the celestial disturbance sign must occur before the day of the Lord. Second Thessalonians 2, the apostasy and the revealing of the man of lawlessness must occur before the Greek word protos, the day of the Lord. Of course, we all know that stuff. So setting that aside for now, the reason why that worldview could have a general argument for this or any other similar conflict having to do with the end times is that imagine that if you believe that the rapture could happen at any moment, it could happen before I get done saying this sentence. And in their view, in the sort of left left behind world, they, the way they kind of envision it, because it's a real time crunch for them, because they basically need to start the 70th week, what they call the tribulation period, but is, mis, is misnamed. The Great Tribulation occurs after the midpoint, but I call it the seven-year period of the 70th week of Daniel. They believe that that will happen just immediately after the rapture. And the first event in that seven-year period is a covenant made with many, which they, and how Lindsay has always interpreted to be a peace treaty, right? Now, I could definitely take or leave the peace treaty language. That's a total eisegesis moment from how Lindsay but I would say that no matter what that covenant made with many is, it must include the restarting of the twice daily sacrifice on the Temple Mount, which is the core of the Jewish religion, because in the middle of the week, that sacrifice is stopped, which is a clear indication and implication that it started with that covenant, which, of course, I can't, I'm not going to go into that. But you don't need to believe that in order to follow my logic here. The logic is simply this. If you believed that the rapture could happen any moment... And that immediately after that, let's say the rapture happened in five minutes from now, immediately after that, a guy would show up and make a peace treaty with Israel. Then in your mind, you need bad conflict with Israel um, to be brewing so that your paradigm can have a peace treaty. You need, need non-peace to have a peace treaty. And because they believe that the rapture can happen any moment, I could see why you could say that any conflict that would require a peace treaty could be what you're looking for in Bible prophecy. Um, but in that case, I would really caution you from telling your congregation that what we're seeing here is the fulfillment of Bible prophecy, because that would be not true. That would be, um, that would be sin to say that in my opinion, because at best in that scenario, all you could say is that this conflict could be the con there's nothing about this specific conflict. There's been a kajillion Israel Palestinian conflicts. I remember doing podcasts like these, what, uh, four years ago when the last one, and then two years before that. And when, when it got really hot and the whole world was mad, and every evangelical said the rapture was happening, it, this happens over and over and over again. We always do it every single time this happens. So if your paradigm in that scenario is only talking about a general conflict because you need a peace treaty, then there's nothing specific about this one that would make it more biblically a fulfillment in that scenario. And thus, you shouldn't say to your congregation, this is it, everybody. The next reason I think a lot of good teachers out there are, you know, saying that the end times is upon us because of the current geopolitics is because of vague notions about the Gog-Magog war, specifically, again, the how Lindsay paradigm of the Gog-Magog war. And that is that Russia is Gog and Magog, and that it's going to come against Israel along with Iran. Um, and, and because both Iran and Russia are generally speaking in the news, never mind that 
Russia isn't planning on attacking Israel or anything like that. It, it's just very vague notions. The words Iran, the words Russia, Israel is involved, and you and and, and how Lindsay something something. You know, is basically as far as that really goes. Now I've done extensive work on the Gog Magog War. I think it's one of my of all the things that I would say that I've contributed to this world of Bible prophecy. I think it's one of the best things out there. I, I don't know anybody that's done as more in-depth study on the Gog Magog War. I've done a video, it's like a three or four hour video called Gog Magog Study All Parts in One Video. Type in Chris White or something like that in YouTube and you might be able to find it. Um, but the main thing there, and I've written about this in other books, but there are three main views about the timing of the Gog-Magog War. The Howlensy version is the pre-seven-year period Gog-Magog War and that Russia is involved, meaning that the Gog-Magog War could happen before the rapture even. That's what's been taught in pre-trib circles. It's given them something to talk about in Bible prophecy conferences. And that it could happen before the rapture even, though most pre-tribbers would probably not say it would. They would probably put it somewhere maybe in the first half of the seven-year period or something like that. More recently, uh, people like Joel Richardson, the Islamic Antichrist uh, uh, people, have put the Gog-Magog War firmly at Armageddon. So uh, they would say that the Gog-Magog War is Armageddon. It's just another name for Armageddon, which, of course, takes place at the very end of the seven-year period. In which case, whether you think it's Russia or Iran or not, we're not going to see that for at least seven years, so you don't have to worry about it. And then the view that I hold is that the Gog-Magog War occurs when John says it does in Revelation, where he says it occurs at the end or when the thousand years is completed. So there's the millennium, of course. After Armageddon, there's a millennium. After that millennium is ended, Satan is released. Satan goes and gathers an army bigger than the sands of the sea. They come against the beloved city, but are destroyed by fire. John calls it Gog Magog, and it happens at the end of uh, the millennium. And then the great white throne judgment starts, etc., etc. So I would say that whatever your paradigm is, you've got to deal with a very Gog, but John calls it Gog Magog, and it occurs after the end of the thousand years. I think the best way to resolve, because there are some similarities with that in Armageddon, uh, particularly the bird feast and some other issues. But I would say that the best way to look at it is that that Armageddon is kind of a type or a prefiguration of the actual event, which will be perfectly and finally fulfilled at the end of the thousand year period. Um, but the view that the Gog-Magog war occurs before Armageddon at any time it's a non-starter when you start to realize all the things that you have to fit into that paradigm. For example, Ezekiel talks about at the end of the Gog-Magog war, nobody is going to blaspheme the Lord's name anymore. Like, if you think that that happens before the Antichrist, what do you do with the Antichrist? Not only is he blaspheme, you know, if God says at the end of the Gog-Magog war, no, nobody's going to blaspheme his name anymore, and you got the Gog-Magog war before the seven-year period even starts... The Antichrist certainly is going to be blaspheming God's name. We know that biblically. You've got verses like Ezekiel 39, 7, the, then the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. That happens as a result of God's miraculous deliverance at the end of the Gog Magog War. So now you've got to have everybody in the nation knowing that God is the, the true God during the uh, seven-year period. You've got problems like the dwelling secu securely 
words, phrases like dwelling securely, dwelling in a land that has undergone a restoration from the sword, a land of unwalled villages, peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. It's all inconsistent with Israel's current geopolitical situation. I mean, it just doesn't fit at all. So the pre-70th week version, or really early 70th week version of the Gog Magog War is not tenable. It never has been. Hal Lindsey, it's not like he had good arguments in his book, The Late Great Planet Earth, or subsequent books about this. He didn't mention any of these problems. This was not, That's not his writing style. He basically told us a narrative, and that was what we believed. It was... Anyway, so... And, and, and you can look at recent papers from people like J. Paul Tanner, Ralph Alexander, look at the Journal of Evangelical uh, Society, JET, and they have some great papers on this that go through the same thing, that, that logically you just can't have a pre-70th week Gog Magog war. Now, Hal Lindsey had another problem, and that has to do with the vague notions that we have with this issue, which is Russia. Russia is clearly in the news um, with what they're doing. Now, I don't think Russia currently has anything to do with Israel, so that's just a, a leap people are making, but they are in the news, and that's good enough, I guess. But the problem is, is that the whole original Gog Magog thing that Hal Lindsey did, he forced, he shoehorned Russia into that. He was a Cold War, you know, died in the wool Cold War guy, so he is gonna get Russia into the mix there. And in order to make that nonsense happened. He had to take out the whole uh, J-Path's sons. I call it the J-Pathian cohort there. You know, Meshach and Tubal, all those guys. Some of those names in Eastern Turkey still have the same names, basically. Um, It's always been Eastern Turkey. It never was Russia. Moscow and and was never involved in any of this, you know. And that's been, again, ad nauseum people have wrote about that now it's well known to the people who know but for the people who are flying by the seat of their pants with this stuff it's still it's still believed also i'll put into the show notes of this podcast so you can look on your podcatcher there and i'll put the show notes to the multi-hour gog magog study uh, about the timing of the gog magog war and some of the problems that people are having and stuff like that um, as well as some of the other things that i'll talk about which is uh, the next one I'll briefly mention is the Psalm 83 war. The Psalm 83 war concept, as far as I can tell, was uh, created by Bill Salas, who in his reading of Psalm 83, which is a Psalm of Asaph, um, he says that it's a prophecy of a war that has not yet happened. Now, previous scholars have not seen either a prophecy or a war in Psalm 83, but rather a prayer of Asaph in which They are petitioning God to protect them from a group of surrounding nations who are plotting against Israel. So Asaph is like, hey God, these specific nations are plotting against me. Would you please take care of them for me? And everything that he describes of those nations are consistent with what was going on in Asaph's day around 950 BC. There's no reason to, I mean, if God answered Asaph's prayer, then those nations that were plotting against them uh, didn't attack them. So what I mean is there's th- those nations don't attack them in the psalm, so there's no war in the psalm. There's only a plotting, which Asaph is praying to stop. There's no prophecy because Asaph is not prophesying. He's not using any prophetic language. There's nothing about this that would be prophecy. Salus's argument is like, you know, we'd never have seen a war with these specific nations, so therefore, 
uh, it must be in the future. Well, if this was a prophecy about a war that we haven't seen yet, then that would be a valid argument. But that's not what happened. This is a prayer about some some people who are uh, making dealings in a back room that Asaph is praying that God would uh, break it up. So there never has been a Psalm 83 war. But again, this is a firmly held belief in the pre-trib circles. And because it has vague things to do with the Middle East, it starts to be brought up in these kinds of conversations. So before I get into my view about what we probably should be looking for uh, geopolitically to determine whether or not we're in the end times in order to be good watchmen, the last thing I will mention as a reason that I think we're seeing a lot of fervor with this Israeli-Palestinian conflict is just something very general, which is the um, Islamic Antichrist theory. I believe that that theory, which is that the Antichrist would be a Muslim and would convince the world to become Muslims or, 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 or kill them, it, you know, it certainly gained popularity. Walid Shobat, uh, he got it from a guy named Simon Altoff. Weird story there. Uh, but he co-wrote the book with Joel Richardson called God's War on Terror shortly after 9-11. And then, of course, Richardson has written many subsequent books about it. Uh, and I've done a book myself called The Islam Islamic Antichrist Debunked, in which I went through the exact arguments. Like, how are they coming up with the idea that the Assyrian, that the Antichrist is called an Assyrian, because they just, you, you'll be blown away about how they came to that conclusion. And, and the idea about the Mahdi and Isa, I think one of my contributions was to show where that all came from, because right now there's a, an idea that it was some kind of satanic prophecy and that that's how the future events are going to play out. But when you see for yourself where the idea of the Mahdi and Isa came from, which is basically a straight copy and paste from the early Christian writings, the Pseudopigrapha, Methodius, and Pseudo-Ephraim, who at the time were writing about something they called the last Roman emperor because Rome had fell and they were like, could not understand that because they had equated the kingdom of God with Rome. So when Rome fell, they like believed that it would get reinstated again. So they came up with a theory about this last Roman emperor who would, who would defeat all the Muslims and then he would give his crown to Jesus and then the end times would start. And and that was written at the same time the Hadiths were written. So they just, they copy and pasted it. And that's where we get the Mahdi and Isa. My book, Islamic Antichrist Debunked, is for free. You can go to Bible Prophecy Text and just read it in HTML form. I think I've got a PDF form for free you can download. And I believe the audiobook version is for free on my podcast feed, BibleProphecyTalk.com as well. So there are lots of ways that you can ingest that and see if I have better arguments or they have better arguments. So what are the things that I'm looking for to determine if we're near the end times. Now, I would say that I know some people would suggest that the birth pains and, and the Olivet Discourse, that they are generally happening over time, you know, earthquakes are getting worse and and these kinds of things. I think there are, I've talked about that in other podcasts when I talk about are we in the end times, generally speaking. I don't think that the birth pains are talking about a period of events, as some will say, for the last 2,000 years or the last 40 years. or the last. I don't think that that's what it's saying. I think that it's re referring to a time period basically from the start of the 70th week of Daniel. I think that the birth pains, in other words, are, occur rapidly after the covenant is made. And I have reasons for believing that, um, but it's not necessary to my 
upcoming arguments here, but I do want to mention the birth pangs because it's a lot of times what people will sort of think of when they think of what should we be looking for. And the the two general birth pains um, theory that has developed in recent years is totally unfalsifiable and can be applied to anything because there's nothing specific. You can say, oh, there's wars and rumors of wars, uh, uh, whatever. But I actually think that even that term, rumors of wars, is a strange term. It's used in the, uh, uh, in the book of Daniel to refer to the wars of the Antichrist when he hears of rumors in the Far East and stuff like that. I, I think that the I think you can actually map out what's being said there with the birth pains and map it to the wars of the Antichrist in Daniel 11, but that's a whole other story. Um, you can believe that the birth pains are a thing and, and you can still believe what I'm about to say. All right, so premise number one that you need to determine if it is or isn't true is does the Antichrist arrive after and only after the 10 kings have been established. I get this from Daniel chapter 7, in which Daniel had a vision of four beasts, uh, the last of which is widely understood to be the Antichrist kingdom. And that beast has 10 horns on it. It's a diverse beast. It's a crushing everything and all kinds of stuff. So Daniel has this intense vision. Three of the horns are plucked up by the final little horn, and later on, the angel interprets the vision in very plain language. So we don't have the luxury of allegorizing this because the angel tells us what it is. And in verse 24 of Daniel 7, it says, As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. And another, this is speaking of the Antichrist, widely understood. And another, the Antichrist, will arise after them. And he, the Antichrist, will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings. So right there in 724, we have twice mentioned chronological language that the Antichrist will arise after the ten horns. And I would say that the narrative itself demands it as well. For example, the Antichrist uh, subdues, it uses this strange word, subdues three of these horns, both in the vision and in the interpretation. And so logically, you can't subdue something that doesn't exist yet. So what that's what I mean by, in the narrative, the Ten Kings must exist before the Antichrist as well. Now, I've done a video called uh, the BPT Timeline, all parts in one video. I'll also link that in the description. It's another three-hour, multi-week study um, in which I basically went through the timeline of Bible prophecy as I see it and talked about how all this could come together and it's really in detail. And I mentioned that to say that I think that we can, through studying scripture, show that this defeating of the three kings matches with the wars of Antichrist and must be at the beginning of the Antichrist's career. Now, I don't need you to believe that in order to understand the implications for our current geopolitical situation. But I do want to suggest that there is good evidence, and you can watch that video that I'll link, the Bible prophecy timeline video, um, to suggest that this is the Antichrist's debut. His debut is as a warlord. He comes in opposition to the Ten Kings, which, by the way, very few prophecy teachers are talking about. I have no idea 
what's going on out there, but that seems like a pretty big deal. Why is the Antichrist in opposition to this 10 King situation? And why is he attacking three of them? So the first premise, I think, is a pretty simple one. I'm not asking you to believe much, but premise one, that the Antichrist arrives after and only after the 10 Kings. No matter what you think the 10 Kings are, the Antichrist arrives after them, both in the narrative and stated directly in Daniel 7, 24. The next premise, I think, is fairly easy to accept as well, which is that the beasts in, for example, Daniel 7, or the statue pieces in Daniel 2, or the heads of the beast of which the ten horns sit in Revelation um, 17 and 18 and 13, etc., that those all represent empires. They're sometimes called kings, sometimes called kingdoms, but just following scripture, for example, it really does seem to be empire specifically, whether that's Greece or Medo-Persia or Rome. The angel tells us that the seven uh, heads are seven kings, five have fallen, one has not yet come. So we're the beneficiary of another angelic interpretation who doesn't give us an allegorical out there. So the idea that evangelical Christianity and really historical Christianity has always understood this to be a reference to empires. So it's a fairly easy premise to accept that the head of the beast on which the ten horns sit, the Antichrist empire, is an empire in the same way that, you know, Medo-Persia was an empire or Rome was an empire. I do have one more premise, but it's a little harder to accept. So let me first just make my point with these two premises, which is that Okay, so the Antichrist, the little horn, must arrive after the formation of this ten-horn-administrated uh, uh, empire, if premise, true, if premise two is true. So an empire must exist before the Antichrist can arrive. So now we have a problem because we don't have one of those empires. and All we have is an Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and that's not good enough to constitute an end times prophecy being fulfilled. It could be that this Israeli-Palestinian conflict could lead to something much, much bigger. A world war, I've always assumed that it would have to be some unbelievably big conflict to redraw the borders in the way that it seems like the Bible is saying. Now, you could take a very milk toast version of this. I think Hal Lindsey has always tried to really minimize this. He's, he's, you know, he threw some stuff out there. Maybe it was the Club of Rome. Maybe it would be the European Union or anything else. They'll do the U, they'll take anything, the UN, whatever, as long as there's 10. Of course, there's not 10 of any of those things. So maybe some nations will drop out. Maybe some nations will, you know. So there's some, and it's not a terrible idea that are watching like a hawk, which nations will drop out of the European Union, and that will be the 10 uh, nation confederacy. And I, I, I mean, I can't argue with that. If that happens and that becomes the dominant force, uh, then I'd be looking at that squint-eyed. But I think what we're seeing here is something much bigger. Now, the question is, how long does an empire like that need to exist before the little horn can arise? Is it going to be like an hour? Is it going to be a year? Is it going to be five years? Is it going to be 500 years? We don't know. All we know is that an empire that it doesn't exist yet, doesn't exist now, must exist before the Antichrist even shows up. 
how long is it's possible i suppose that an empire can exist they sign the paperwork and then immediately turn it over to the antichrist like it's an empire in name only because it existed for five minutes and then he took it over but it seems much more likely that this 10 nation administered empire will exist for some years before the antichrist shows up the next and final premise i have is a doozy and it's where i'm going to lose most of you but i think that the logic really is sound And if it's true, it basically throws most of the current evangelical paradigm about how the end times will play out just out of the window. Because if, and here's the premise, that to be considered a beast head, whether it's, uh, you know, the book of Revelation or a beast in Daniel 7, for example, basically to be accounted as one of those empires that are singled out as one of the seven heads of the beast, what is the criteria that unifies those seven empires? And why aren't other empires included? Why don't we include the British Empire in that? Is there any reason that those seven were chosen and others were left out? And again, I'm not shooting from the hip here. I mean, I think that you can do a study between Daniel 2 and 7 and uh, 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 13, Revelation. You can determine at least some of what those heads are, if not all of them. And the thing that they had in common was that they controlled Israel. They weren't just a regular empire, like the British Empire. The British Empire never controlled the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel existed during all of those other empires, the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. You could say there's Israel existing within this empire, but it was controlled, like in the Roman times. They couldn't execute people or do what they really wanted because Rome was truly the, the, they were just a vassal of Rome. That was the nature of one of these monstrosities that took over, uh, and became an empire. And the, the defining factor, it only happened those five times since Rome, five have fallen, each one is, so that's six, six occasions in which an empire controlled Israel. There's only been six and there hasn't been any since. The British Empire never controlled Israel. The British Empire controlled land that was certainly not considered the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel didn't exist again until after the land was theirs. So only what six times in history has Israel been controlled by an empire and never since. But we know that it will be again. And here's the kicker. This is the really, really difficult thing that'll change the evangelical paradigm if anybody ever teaches it, is that they Israel is going to lose their sovereignty again before the Antichrist arrives, if those three premises are true. Because if an empire must be an empire because it controls Israel, and the heads are an empire, and the empire exists before the Antichrist, then Israel is going to be controlled by an empire before the Antichrist even shows up. Okay, let's get back to Earth here, this Israel-Palestinian conflict. Do I think it could spread into a wider thing? You know, certainly geopolitically, all kinds of stuff is happening right now. It's been my position for a while now that this, the new world order types or whoever it is that seems to be pulling the strings, they seem to really want war. And I can see why even a great nuclear war would benefit their agenda of control. I don't know if it's got to be nuclear or whatever. I'm just saying that in my view, a world war has to happen to get us from point A, that is to say, no empires existing in the world right now, to point B, an empire that not only exists and has 10-somethings, but also controls Israel. 
Okay, I've said all this stuff a million times. I do feel like a broken record. I don't know if I'm even adding anything to the conversation anymore. But I do feel like you can get most of this in a much more coherent way um, at the website or Bible Prophecy Talk or go check the links in the description to the videos and stuff that I mentioned in the books or whatever. So, all right, I hope this helps. Uh, Talk to you all later. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. 